Oh, yay. Oh, yay. This is SCOTUS Talk, a nonpartisan podcast about the Supreme Court for lawyers and non-lawyers alike. Brought to you by SCOTUS Blog. Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. Thanks for joining us. On the first Monday in October, the justices of the Supreme Court will return to the bench after their summer recess. The justices are coming off one of their biggest terms in recent memory. Among other things, they issued a decision overturning their landmark decisions in Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which had recognized a constitutional right to an abortion, and issued another decision holding that the Second Amendment protects a right to carry a gun outside of the home. The 2022-2023 term has the potential to be another blockbuster. Joining us today to preview the term are two lawyers who are deeply knowledgeable about the Supreme Court, and we are lucky to have them. Morgan Ratner is a member of the Supreme Court and appellate practice at Sullivan and Cromwell, where she's special counsel. Morgan spent several years as an assistant to the U.S. Solicitor General and argued eight cases before the court. Morgan, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Amy. And Jamie Santos is a partner in the Supreme Court and appellate practice at Goodwin, where she has authored or co-authored dozens of briefs at the court. She was also a co-host of the very popular Strict Scrutiny podcast. Jamie, thanks for joining us. Nice to see you. So I want to start by looking ahead at what seem to be the highest profile cases of the term so far. And I'd let you just get your thoughts on what the court might be likely to do, why they would do that, and what the implications of the court's rulings could be, as well as any other thoughts, I guess, that you think our listeners should hear about some of these cases. So I'm going to start with what's known as the affirmative action cases, a pair of cases involving Harvard and the University of North Carolina, and in particular, a challenge to the consideration of race in their undergraduate admissions process. The justices have been asked to overrule the court's 2003 decision in Grutter versus Bollinger, holding that the University of Michigan could consider race as part of its efforts to assemble a diverse student body. And then one other thing I sort of want to throw in, in addition to the court's holding in that case, in her opinion in Grutter, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor indicated that this rule about considering diversity would sunset, so to speak. And so we're gonna play just a tiny snippet from her opinion announcement. We see no reason to exempt race-conscious admissions programs from the requirement that all governmental uses of race must have a logical endpoint. We take the law school at its word that it would like nothing better than to find a race-neutral admissions formula and will terminate its race-conscious admissions program as soon as practicable. It has been 25 years since Justice Powell first suggested approval of the use of race to further an interest in student body diversity in the context of higher education. We expect that 25 years from now, the use of racial preferences will no longer be necessary to further the interests that we approve today. Jamie, I want to start with you. Sure. So I think that what time has shown, um, at least certainly the uh, UNC and Harvard are saying, is that this was really an aspirational statement by Justice O'Connor, and and that unfortunately we are not there yet. And I will say, though, that I I think it is hard for me to to see a decision that doesn't overturn uh, Grutter. Um, I think in the Harvard case, you know, there were these, there was a full-blown trial, there were uh, incredibly detailed factual findings. The First Circuit had an incredibly fact-bound decision. 
the decisions I think were as bulletproof under Grutter as you could possibly get. Um, and so unless there were pr five pretty well-assured votes to reverse and to, to kind of reverse course on Grutter, I, I don't know that there would have been a huge point in granting cert in this case. Um, and in the UNC case where the court granted cert even before judgment, uh, unless there were really five votes to reverse. Uh, so, so I have a hard time seeing anything other than than the court overruling Grutter. Though I do wonder whether there's a chance that one case could turn out one way and one case could turn out the other way. So that the, the two cases, Harvard and UNC, they have a couple differences uh, among them. So one is that Justice Jackson cannot um, or will not be uh, on the panel for the Harvard case because she was on the um, Harvard whatever the version of the Harvard Board of Regents is. So she's kind of recused from that case. And the other difference is that Harvard has a legacy admissions program and UNC doesn't. Um, and that could theoretically impact uh, how the court views the necessity of using race in college admissions consideration. So I think there's a chance that the two cases could turn out differently, um, but, but it seems probably unlikely. I guess I'd add two things to that. I mean, the first is, I agree with Jamie that generally speaking, it seems unlikely that the court is going to leave these decisions as they came. But the interesting question for me is, you know, in the court's previous affirmative action cases, it's done a lot of tinkering, right? It's refining just how much race can be used, trying to say you can use it a little bit, but not too much. Um, and so I think the question in terms of how far the court goes is, is there room for any more tinkering? The big overarching question about the viability of race conscious admissions, I think might turn on whether the court thinks that admissions officers really can look at race without turning it into a system of racial balancing, and whether if the court gives a little more guidance, then maybe race can be used, but just used a little bit less. And I, I don't know whether five justices will see a path to, to doing some more tinkering there as opposed to a categorical holding. The second thing I would say is it has long seemed like Gruder, whether whether to overrule Gruder was sort of the end game. Um, it strikes me that the parties here debate really at length whether universities have workable race neutral alternatives to achieve educational diversity. And what's really interesting to me now is that waiting in the wings, if the court gets rid of affirmative action, are challenges to race-neutral alternatives. We saw this with the Thomas Jefferson case that went to the court in April. There, the Thomas Jefferson School had changed its admissions policy um, to, to guarantee seats to top students at, at various schools and to not use race in the admissions process. It was a race-blind process that was an alternative that was still designed to hopefully get some educational diversity. And so, I, you know, again, I, I think the, the end game has long been, well, is Gruder going to go down? But I think there's a, a pretty lurking question of, is that going to be the end of the line? Or are there going to be challenges to facially race neutral programs that were still designed to ensure some educational diversity? Can I ask, you may not know the answer to this, but how conscious are the justices when they hear argument in the Harvard and UNC cases 
that these other cases are lurking back there. Well, I mean, they have to be conscious of the Thomas Jefferson case because it sure. came up on an emergency application in, in April. I think there were three dissents at that time. Um, so, so I imagine that that case, at least as an example of this um, sort of segment of race-neutral admissions policies, um, have to be on the minds of it, at least some of them. I think that the last couple of terms have shown that the justices are keeping an eye on what's happening out there. I mean, you had last term Justice Sotomayor asked several questions about news coverage that pertain to issues before the court. Um, I think that, you know, the same blogs and podcasts that Supreme Court commentators and lawyers read uh, are the same ones that many of the justices read themselves. So I would be very surprised if they had no idea kind of what, what else was coming down the pipeline. The next case I want to talk about, ask you about, is a case called 303 Creative. And it is the case of a website designer named Lori Smith, who does not want to design websites for same-sex weddings. And she wants to post a message on her own website to explain that. But there's a Colorado law that prohibits businesses that are open to the public from discriminating against LGBTQ people or announcing their intent to do so. And if this sounds familiar to some of our listeners, it's because in 2018, the Supreme Court had a similar case also from Colorado uh, known as Masterpiece Cake Shop. And the Supreme Court ultimately sidestepped the question before it in that case. But now Smith's case is back in the Supreme Court. Uh, Morgan, so I guess for starters, the court has changed a lot since 2018. Yes, it sure has. You know, I'm not sure that that is the driving factor of why there might be differences here from the outcome in Masterpiece Cake Shop. I think the driving factor is that it doesn't seem apparent to me that there are the same sort of off-ramps that were available to the court uh, in Masterpiece Cake Shop, right? One of the questions there was whether baking a really fancy cake is art uh, or speech. And the same debate was available in a, in a case involving a florist that has sort of bubbled around. But I don't think there's as much of a debate about whether a, a designer of a website is doing some sort of speaking. So that potential off-ramp, I, I think, is is perhaps gone. And then the, the complication in, in Masterpiece, which you suggest the court sidestepped this free speech issue, is um, that uh, there, there was at least an argument about some sort of religious animus by the government decision maker. You know, this case is pre-enforcement, the record is a lot thinner. Um, and so that off-ramp seems potentially unavailable as well. And so I think all of that means that the court doesn't really have the clear ways of avoiding the question, which is this tension between public accommodations laws and speakers who have objections, religious or otherwise. And, and that may be the big thing that is different from last time. Um, I, I did just want to add one thing that's not different from last time is the court's free exercise doctrine, and in particular, its decision in Employment Division against Smith. And I think there's sort of an interesting question in this case 
which is now styled as a full-blown speech case, um, whether it would have looked completely different if the court had taken a different path in the Fulton against Philadelphia case that was decided last year. That was a case where the court was asked to overrule Employment, Di employment Division against Smith and chose not to. Um, if it had revisited Smith, I think you would see the types of arguments made here in 303 Creative packaged instead as free exercise arguments than free speech arguments. Um, but because Smith is still in place and because the court took kind of the narrower free exercise approach in Fulton, I think you see in this case, 303 Creative, the broader free speech argument instead of potentially a narrower free exercise argument. And, and I'll add that, you know, Morgan, you just mentioned that the court doesn't really have as many off-ramps. I would say I don't think they want the off-ramps here. The, the court in this case, at least in my view, reached out to take this case, even though there wasn't really a live, a super significant live concrete dispute. I mean, remember that in Masterpiece Cake Shop, you had a situation where a same-sex couple had asked a baker to bake them a wedding cake. He said no. The couple filed a complaint. Um, the complaint was, you know, resolved by state officials and they found him in violation of state law. And then the case went up to the Supreme Court. And here, in contrast, the website designer hasn't even offered wedding websites for public sale yet. And when she filed her lawsuit, she didn't have an operative business. She hadn't been asked by anyone to design a same-sex wedding website. Um, so this was, I think, a situation in which the court really reached out to take on a case where there was barely a live controversy. So I think the court doesn't want the offerings. It squarely wants to look at this, uh, this free expression issue. And I think as with the affirmative action cases, I, I have a hard time seeing the conservative wing of the court reaching out to kind of take this case if it didn't think it had five solid votes to decide the issues um, that it left open in Masterpiece Cake Shop. And just one last point, I've, I've been disappointed that no one has been calling this case Masterpiece Website Shop. Um, I've been trying to make it a thing. Hasn't happened. Hopefully, maybe this could be the tip-off point. I'm delighted to start using that term. I will say, as a total aside, one of the friend of the court briefs filed in Masterpiece Cake Shop was a brief that was intended to show that cakes were, in fact, speech and so they had all of these pictures of these unbelievable cakes. I don't know how persuasive it was on the speech question, but it definitely made me really hungry. <laughs> the next case I want to talk about is a case called Moore versus Harper. It is a case that arises from a dispute. Every time there's a, a census, states have to draw new congressional districts, among other things. And so North Carolina was trying to draw new congressional maps the theory at the heart of the case is known as the independent state legislature theory, and it's the idea that under the Constitution, only the state legislature has the power to regulate federal elections without interference from state courts. The elections clause of the Constitution gives state legislatures the power to set the times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives. There's been a lot of discussion about Moore versus Harper. Where do you see the court going and what are the possible implications? So I'll start with the possible implications. I think they are really significant because uh, contesting, you know, state maps based on rules that the state legislatures have put in place, and we'll see this in another election case that I think we're going to talk about. But, you know, looking at these state, you know, legislative actions surrounding 
the creation of maps and, and the regulation of, of elections is really where everything is happening right now in voting rights. There are trials happening in numerous states um, involving similar issues. And so I think this case and um, the other voting rights case have the potential to impact the midterms, the next presidential election, uh, and voting rights going forward. So it's it's a really huge case. You know, this is kind of a strange case. Um, I think it's hard to predict in some ways because I think the conservative wing of the court has put a really huge emphasis on historical understandings of different constitutional provisions in decisions over the last couple of years, including in Dobbs and in the gun rights case, it's looking at what was the original kind of historical understanding of the words that the framers used. And if you kind of look at the, the, the elections clause um, at issue in this case, you know, the, the question, is, as you kind of mentioned, is the, the elections clause says state legislatures um, have the power to prescribe regulations. It doesn't say states have the power to prescribe those regulations. But at the time of the founding, my understanding is that it was pretty well understood historically that reference to state legislatures was understood to mean state legislatures as cabined by state constitutions that created these state legislatures. So I think there's a really strong historical argument if the court is consistent about, you know, its use of historical uh, resources about, you know, what these words mean. And so I, I think that it, it's hard to overcome that historical context. The other thing that I think makes it hard to predict is that the court generally has kind of shown it doesn't really want to get involved in state election regulations. It said that partisan gerrymandering was really above its pay grade. And so getting involved in a dispute between a state legislature and a state high court really doesn't sound super appetizing, but the court took on this case. And so I really wonder, did it take on the case so that it could impose constraints on state courts like it has imposed constraints on federal courts, which seems kind of not in line with what the court has, has seemed like it had, has wanted to do? Or did it take on the case to show that it was consistently applying a, a historical analysis of the Constitution and it can do so in a consensus-driven, you know, nonpartisan, non-ideological way? I, I, don't, I don't really have a sense. So I should add first that I could probably talk about this case for the rest of our time here because I just did a mock oral argument in it at the William and Mary Supreme Court preview. So I'm like ready to go on this one if you have any questions. Excellent. Um, but <laughs> please just explain how everything I said was totally wrong, which no, I'm sure probably no. No, no, just delete that what, <laughs> what you said is great. I mean, the, the, look, the thing that I would add to it is this strikes me as a case where the court would be interested, or at least a majority of justices would be interested in finding a potential middle ground, but it is very hard for me to see what that middle ground might be. You have petitioners are sort of swinging for the fences saying state constitutional provisions don't ever apply to federal elections or federal election regulations. And while we don't have respondents briefs yet, um, I expect they'll argue like their briefs in opposition that this is all just sort of a state law question. And I, I think there's probably some interest at the court in finding a path in between and wondering, you know, is there a way to say some state court decisions go too far and look like legislation, but ordinary state constitutional provisions apply and state courts can construe them sort of in ordinary ways. And I don't know that the parties have offered up really a very clear middle ground alternative about 
sort of how skeptical a federal court needs to be of a state court's resolution of state law before it becomes a federal issue, or how much delegating a state legislature can do before it runs up against some sort of non-delegation principle that's embedded in the elections clause. Um, I'm just candidly not sure whether there is a possible middle ground there um, where you, you know, where federal courts could review the most dramatic state court decisions. And, and this is admittedly on the dramatic side, um, but where federal courts could keep out of being sort of roped into every state law election dispute. Um, and so I, I expect there's going to be a lot of inquiry at argument trying to figure out whether there is actually a principled administrable line in the middle. And I, I don't yet know what that line might be. Yes, because this does start to sound like the partisan gerrymandering cases, you, you know, putting aside sort of the, the substance of the rule, are the justices going to be worried that if they don't wash their hands of these disputes altogether, that they're going to be, this is going to become a part-time job. Right. But I, I do think it's one thing for the Supreme Court to tell federal courts, you know, stay out of this. This isn't really your line of business. It's another thing to effectively tell state courts to stay out of it. And, I, and this is where I think it, it gets very complicated because we're talking about a federal constitutional provision, but we're talking about state constitutional provisions and you know, all of this, this kind of overlapping jurisdiction. Um, but it does make it very hard, I think, to predict what's going to happen. All right. Well, I guess we'll, maybe we can have you back after the oral argument to talk some more about it or the opinion. The last case I want to sort of focus on the last of the cases that is already on the court's docket for the fall is one that you mentioned, Jamie, is a case called Merrill versus Milligan, and the justices agreed to review a decision by lower courts in Alabama, and the lower courts held that the state likely violated the Federal Voting Rights Act when it drew a new map for congressional elections that contained only one out of seven majority Black districts. The justices earlier this year put the lower court's order that had required the state to draw a new map on hold. So Alabama is going to be using this map that lower courts have said likely violates the Voting Rights Act for the 2022 elections. The Chief Justice dissented from the court's order, um, but he said, you know, that on the one hand, the lower court's order is consistent with the current voting rights law, but he said, on the other hand, we should take up this dispute because there's uncertainty about what the plaintiffs have to show in this case. Morgan? Sure. So, I mean, I think that last point that you make, Amy, is really the jumping off point for what this case might look like, right? Section two is a tricky area for the Supreme Court because the statutory text is a little bit opaque. And so it's an area where the court has created doctrines and checklists to try to effectuate that text. Two terms ago in Brnovich, the court tried to sort of go back to the statute and it came up with a new test for time, place, or manner voting rules. But this is really a heartland section two vote dilution challenge. And so the question is, 
does the court want to go do the same thing it did in Brnovich and try to take a, take a step back and figure it out? Um, or does it want to review things through the existing vote dilution framework, what's often called the, the jingles test? Um, and I, I think that those two possibilities are really what the, the Chief Justice's opinion was suggesting. You know, if I had to hazard a guess, which is always dangerous, especially before argument, it seems unlikely to me that the court is going to chuck jingles altogether. Maybe Jamie will have a different view on this. Um, but I do think the justices will be interested in incorporating into the jingles framework some idea that race needs to have a more limited role. It's sort of hearkening back to the affirmative action cases we've talked about, some notion that you can't have too much consideration of race. I don't know if they'll do that as an add-on to the jingles test for single member districting or as a refinement of the first step of the jingles test or as part of the totality of the circumstances analysis that's supposed to be run after the jingles test. Um, and I don't think that doctrinal framework really maybe matters all too much exactly where it puts whatever clarification it sees as necessary. But I do think the important thing is that the court, or at least five justices, are probably going to want some sort of clarification. And then my guess is that they would leave the parties to duke it out on remand. But of course, we'll get we'll get more hints on that at, at the argument. I think that a theme of several of the cases we've talked about today and, and uh, uh, several of the things you said, Morgan, is that there's this outstanding question, is the court going to tinker or is it going to overhaul? And I think that is really kind of exemplifies the current Roberts court, because that's the question in almost every case, it seems like, is the court going to tinker or is it going to overhaul? And I think that before, you know, a few years ago, there was this I would say general consensus among a lot of commentators and lawyers that the court, at least in its first few terms with this newly more conservative court, is probably going to tinker. They're not going to do anything really drastic. And I think if the last couple terms have, have really taught me anything, it's that the, this court is not afraid to overhaul. And so I, I think that tinkering is possible, but I, I kind of think it's a little less likely. I think I totally agree with you that this case reminds me of the affirmative action cases. And I think Alabama is likely to win because the court, I think, is going to see Section 2, at least as the, the current framework for looking at Section 2 cases, as putting a thumb on the scale of Black voters. And just like in the affirmative action cases, I think a majority of the justices don't like the idea of putting a thumb on the scale of any particular set of people based on their race. They think that it's inconsistent with equal protection, um, which they see as embodying colorblindness rather than kind of a quality of opportunity. And so I think that they're likely to find some way to remove the thumb uh, from the scale of, of, of Black voters and try to incorporate more greater proof of an intent to discriminate rather than just kind of a discriminatory result. But I do think this is one of those same cases where the one side is really shooting for the fences um, and there's a lot of opportunity for the court to kind of come down in the middle and it's we'll, we'll find out at argument how the justices might be leaning. Yeah, I think my vote, my prediction is definitely on the tinkering side for this case. I think there are sort of equal protection arguments and the like in in it, but I my again, my wild guess is that they are more likely to push the court in sort of 
cabining or, or specifying exactly how race can be considered and not in, for example, getting rid of section two altogether. Those are kind of the major cases. Are there sleeper cases that either one of you is following that, that we haven't mentioned yet? So I, I don't know that it's a sleeper case. It's probably not, but I am really interested in national pork producers against Ross, um, not just because it's about bacon, but it doesn't hurt. <laughs> For those who need a little background, there's a California statute that prohibits the sale of pork in California that comes from a hog raised under certain conditions. Um, most hogs are not raised in California. You are probably not surprised to learn. But Wait, so I will say, though, that there are a ton of cows in California. There's okay. more farmland in California than there is in many Midwestern states. Uh, so it's not crazy surprising. But uh, but yes. <laughs> All right. Well, look, I got my, my family's in Wisconsin and Iowa, so I think we feel a little protective of the hog raising around there. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, so look, California is regulating sales in its state, but the conditions that hogs are raised under are occurring mostly elsewhere. And because California is such an important market, the regulation in its state may affect how these sort of hog raising conditions throughout the country. So the pork industry is raising two challenges under the Dormant Commerce Clause. One is whether this is effectively an extraterritorial regulation. Um, is it really regulating the sale of pork in California or is it regulating hog raising conditions in Iowa? And the second is, even if it's not extraterritorial, does this have such a disproportionate effect on interstate commerce without any corresponding state interest that it fails what's known as the pike balancing test? What's fun about this case, like all, like many dormant commerce clause cases, is that it gets everyone all mixed up in terms of ideologies. You know, the justices you might expect to be the fastest to quirk an eyebrow at California animal welfare rules also includes some justices who maybe don't believe the Dormant Commerce Clause exists at all. That's a position Justice Thomas has taken. Uh, I believe Justice Gorsuch has suggested that as a court of appeals judge. I'm not sure he's said anything uh, as a justice. Got the United States siding against the, the Solicitor General's office, siding against California here. And just generally speaking, these dormant commerce clause cases don't divide up along clear ideological lines. So I think it's a fun one to look at and keep an eye out for because in a polarized hot button issue term, it allows for some fun doctrinal debates that just don't necessarily map onto what uh, court watchers assume are justices' political priors. And everyone loves bacon, so it's all good. And bacon, yeah. so. <laughs> uh, I am also watching that case, but for a different reason, um, because it, 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 I love bacon, so obviously that's one of the reasons, but uh, I'm watching it because you know what else is coming down the pipeline involving state laws with an extraterritorial impact on interstate commerce, uh, abortion. Um, so there's all these you know state laws that are being enacted or maybe um, going to be enforced that are threatening to prosecute out-of-state employers who offer healthcare benefits or travel uh, benefits or 
out-of-state drug distributors and manufacturers who sell uh, medication abortion. And there are states that are trying to ban that activity and apply those laws um, to actors outside of the state. And I think the Commerce Clause is going to be an important tool in the toolbox of advocates who want to challenge those laws. And I wouldn't be surprised to see some of the folks who are opposing California here, you know, endorsing a different position in in some of the abortion cases. Uh, so I, I think it'll, you know, the, the case isn't on all fours with abortion cases, but there's a whole host of things that the court could say that could be used in those cases for years to come. And the other issue, the other case I'm watching is the Andy Warhol case, this fair use case about a series of works by Andy Warhol that depict the artist formerly known as Prince. Um, and they were based on a photograph taken by a photographer, Lynn Goldsmith, many years ago. This case is fun, I think, because the, the conventional wisdom would be that this case didn't have a great chance of being granted under the conventional cert standards. Uh, the court just decided a fair use case uh, within the last year or two. Um, and while the case law in this area is really a mess, there wasn't really a clean circuit split. But this case falls within what I call the sexy case exception to the court's cert standards. It's interesting. It involves Prince. It involves Warhol. The amicus briefs are colorful, literally colorful. There's lots of images. Uh, we filed a brief on behalf of museums and art foundations that had, it's probably the most not safe for work brief ever filed in the Supreme Court because um, there's lots of reproductions of images, uh, people that may or may not have clothes on. Um, so it's a fun and interesting case and is is sure to uh, have lots of interesting hypotheticals. And I think it's a case where Justice Breyer will be very much missed on the hypothetical front. The lawyers might not miss him, but the rest of us will. <laughs> yes. Uh, so you've mentioned, Jamie, looking ahead to some of the abortion cases that might be coming down the pike and therefore you're following the, the Commerce Clause case. Are there other cases that you see on the not too distant horizon for the court yeah, the court has only filled its calendar essentially through the end of 2022. So they've got January, February, March, and April yet to fill. Yeah, I think so. Uh, there were no patent cases last term, and there's no patent grants this term so far, which is really unusual. And even when the SG recommended a grant, the court denied cert in a patent case recently. And so I have to think that patent cases could make the cut for the spring and there's a bunch before the court. We have one patent petition that's going to be conferenced at the long conference, uh, Teva Pharmaceuticals USA versus GSK. Um, and it's an interesting case because it involves a really unusual set of federal circuit proceedings. There were two different oral arguments, um, a sua sponte grant of panel rehearing. There were two panel opinions with totally different reasoning, multiple en banc petitions, um, five dissenting opinions over the course of the appellate litigation. And it involves a really important issue uh, involving generic pharmaceutical launch. And here, the, the Federal Circuit really made an abrupt kind of change in course over its longstanding decisions about the law of inducement. Uh, literally, a, a long dissenting Federal Circuit judge in other cases turned her uh, dissenting viewpoint into the majority here and, uh, and really blew a hole in a federal statute along the way. So I think that's one to keep an eye on. There's a couple of cases involving bump stock bans. There's a really interesting uh, petition about Brady violations called Blankenship versus United States. And those are really just the ones that are on the court's docket, not even counting the ones coming out of the um, courts of appeals, including some interesting ones out of the Fifth Circuit and maybe out of the Eleventh Circuit from the, from the Trump uh, Mar-a-Lago search. 
Yeah, I think Jamie's absolutely right that it, it feels like we're destined for at least one patent case soon. There are actually also a trio of important Section 112 cases that are, are pending right now. I believe two of them are up at the long conference, and the third has been CVSG'd for several months now. So I'd, I'd expect we get a, a brief from the SG's office in that case within the next month or two, and, and in any event before the December cutoff. So I think we'll probably get at least one of those Section 112 cases, which for those of you listening, wondering what in the world is Section 112 uh, has to do with, it's traditionally been construed by the Federal Circuit to involve written description and enablement requirements, and it's especially important for life science clients at the moment. Um, you know, on the, the maybe more obvious side, but one we haven't mentioned yet, are these social media laws um, in yes. both Texas and Florida. Um, the, the Fifth Circuit obviously just upheld one in Texas. The Eleventh Circuit had previously rejected one in Florida, and uh, Florida filed its cert petition yesterday in that case. So we'll see whether the court you know, wants to take the Florida one in that posture, or maybe whether it waits for the Texas one. Um, but I imagine that one of those two cases or the two cases together is is bound for the court um, very soon, whether that's this year or potentially rolls over into next year. I'm not sure. Um, but but I think we'll see those cases, you know, within within this term or the next. They seem to check both the circuit split box and the sexy case. Box. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, this has really been fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us to take a look at the term ahead. And we would love to have you back soon. Jamie Santos, Morgan Ratner. Thank you. That's another episode of SCOTUS Talk. Thanks for joining us. And thanks to our production team, Katie Barlow, Eleanor Erskine, Angie Goh, and James Ramoser. 